Uh, continue our study in Shadows of Golgotha. This is week 47. We have been going throughout the Old Testament studying all the pictures and the shadows of the cross of Christ from Genesis and we're going to try to go all the way to Malachi. And Again, the point is, I want to show you guys over and over that the cross was the focal point of, of, of God's salvation plan to us from all eternity to all eternity. We have arrived to Isaiah 53, and today is week number four in our study of Isaiah 53. It's going to be a tough message today, hard to sometimes grasp a lot of hard questions that we're going to try to address. So let's uh, dig into it. We are going to read only one verse, Isaiah 53 verse 4. And I just I've been telling you guys, let's try all of us uh, memorize Isaiah 53 as we go through it. Amen? This week is only one verse, so uh, you can try to memorize that throughout the week. And keep memorizing the scripture we study uh, through, and by the time we finish, you'll have the whole chapter memorized. I truly believe this will be such a blessing to your life. So we're going to read Isaiah 53 verse 4. Uh, this is the one verse we're going to study today, and I'm going to read from the New King James, and this is what the New King James says. Uh, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Amen. We've been talking about that, chap that chapter now for three, four weeks. This section for me, verse 4, 5, and 6, is pretty much for me the holy of holies of the whole chapter, the sanctuary, the most important part that tells us in depth, gives us a deep insight into what Jesus did for us on the cross. We highlighted last week that uh, this chapter, verses 1 to 9, kind of like uh, the nation of Israel, they come back to their senses eventually, and they look back at the cross and say, man, we missed it. Jesus was the Messiah. We just missed the whole thing. And in verses 1 to 3, which we discussed last week, the nation of Israel looks back at the Messiah and how humble he was. Remember you guys talked about this, how Jesus grew up like a root before God. There is no beauty or majesty in him that we desire. That's what the nation of Israel said. So they look back at the upbringing from the day Jesus was born till the day Jesus died. And there was absolutely nothing super majestic about him. And that's what made the nation of Israel reject Christ as the Messiah. They're expecting a king and they got a servant. So they rejected him. Today we're going to start in the second, uh, the second stanza in that chapter, which is verses 4, 5, and 6. And the main theme of these three verses is how Jesus died on our behalf. This is the nation of Israel thinking. Jesus died on our behalf, yet when we looked at him, we truly misjudged why he was going through the cross. We were thinking that he was uh, being smitten and stricken by God and he's enduring all that pain for his own sins. But the fact of the matter is he was doing it for our own sins. Amen? That is the theme of verse 4, 5, and 6. That's what we're going to be talking about for at least a couple of weeks. And then verse 7 and 9, um, that's when we're going to see how um, the nation of Israel look back and see how the servant Christ was treated with absolute other unjust, injustice, yet he totally submitted to God's plan in his life. Today again we're going to stop only at verse 4. And here is what the verse again says. Surely he took our infirmities. There's different readings from different translations. I think this is the NIV. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I want you to focus with me because we're going to go through a lot of stuff. I want to highlight four outlines we're going to discuss today. So focus with me so you can follow me throughout um, how we're going about this. The first thing we're going to start with is we're going to break down that verse in Hebrew. And we're going to study what Isaiah was trying to tell us. And then we're going to move on to how Matthew in the New Testament quoted that verse and how Matthew understood that verse and what Matthew is trying to tell us about that verse. Amen? So we're going to start with the Hebrew, then we're going to move to the New Testament, see what Matthew thought about it. And then we're going to address that question, is healing in the atonement? That's the question that this verse primarily addresses. And then number four, we're going to try to address hard questions. If healing is that torment, what does that mean to you and me in a practical way? Amen? 
And notice I said address hard questions, not answer hard questions, because we might not have a lot of answers by the time we finish our talk today. We're just going to try to address it. Amen? So let's start with the first uh, point, which let's go down into that verse and just break it down in a little bit. The way the Hebrews actually is structured with that verse is very interesting. It goes like this, the sickness of us he bore. And the way it structures, it's kind of like make the two pronouns, us and he, kind of pop out. It's both emphatic. The idea here is that, that, that Isaiah is telling us that it was Jesus himself who bore our own sicknesses and diseases. So he's trying to emphasize how Jesus or the servant was the substitute for the very sickness of the nation of Israel. So the structure again is to pop the two pronouns and put them into contrast of each other. Amen? And then it says here that he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. The two verbs took up and carried, they both suggest carrying something extremely heavy that is too hard to bear. We see this coming first time in Genesis 4.13. We see this verse when, when Cain was telling God after God pronounced the judgment on him and, and Cain said, this punishment that you have just pronounced is on me is too hard for me to bear, too heavy for me to bear. Yet the two verbs that Isaiah used here kind of imply the same thing, that the burden of our sickness and diseases, our sorrows and the infirmities that was carried by the servant was extremely hard for him and really heavy for him to bear. Amen? Amen. Moving on to that text, let's look into the word infirmity and the word sorrows. If you read different translation, you're going to see different um, wording. Uh, how um, the NIV versus the King James versus the New King James, how they translated these words are subjective and, and, and wide-ranging because they really carry a wide range of meaning. The word for infirmity in Hebrew is literally a disease, translated like disease almost every, almost every time in the Bible. It can indicate an Internal disease, as we see in Deuteronomy 7, or an external disease, as in Isaiah 1.5, when God is telling the nation of Israel, you're, I have stricken you from the top of the head to the bottom of the sole of your feet, so you can repent, and you haven't done it. So you can see the outward disease because of God is judging and disciplining them, and they're not repenting. So the word can mean a disease, inward disease, or an outward disease, yet it can also translate it in a general sense as affliction, or calamity, or something within that range. And we move on to the second word, which he took our sorrows. That's the exact same word that we discussed last week when it talked about the servant and he said that he is a man of sorrows, right? He's a man of sorrows. It's the exact same word that, that Isaiah used here. And he said that he has bore our sorrows. Again, the idea here can indicate physical pain, so the idea of sickness and disease is there. Or it can be metaphoric in the pain that the soul goes through. We discussed that last week when in, in Exodus when God said about the children of Israel being in bondage. And he said, I'm going to come down because I know their pain. I know their sorrows. It's the exact same word that the, Isaiah used right here to describe what Jesus bore in our behalf. He bore our sorrows, the, the torment, the affliction, the physical pain, yet the mental pain as well that can be associated sometimes with that. So the two words are wide range uh, in their meanings and what they uh, can mean to you and me. The emphasis a lot is on physical pain, but it can mean more affliction and sorrows and uh, metaphorically the pain that the soul can go through. Now let's just highlight the last two words that he was smitten and he was stricken by God. These words here used as well um, earlier, we see it in the book of uh, Numbers and we see it in 2 Kings. It's mainly used when God strikes somebody with a sickness or with a disease as a punishment for them to disobey God. Amen? That's literally where the word is used primarily. In the book of Leviticus, we see that God strikes somebody with leprosy. Again, it's the same word. He's stricken with leprosy, a disease as a punishment from God on that person because they have 
sinned against God, which makes perfect sense. Remember, this is the nation of Israel looking back at Jesus and what he has done on the cross for us. And they're saying our own perspective is we thought that he was smitten and he was stricken by God for his own sins, right? So they use the exact same words when in the Old Testament is used for God to punish somebody for their own sins. You guys follow me? This is the nation of Israel perspective and they use the words to, uh, to back that up. And then the word smitten by God is also kind of like pops out because literally it tells us that the nation of Israel truly thought that the reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason Jesus endured all this suffering is because he really deserved it. Amen. He really was so bad, have sinned so much against God that God couldn't help it, but ultimately has to punish Christ on the cross. This is again... Israel perspective when they look back and say we thought this is what was going on. Amen? So this is just a little bit of a breakdown of the wording of the verse. Now let's move on to the New Testament. This verse was quoted almost verbatim in Matthew 8 14 to 17. Here is what the context of what Matthew used that verse for. Matthew 8, 14 to 17, uh, Matthew says, And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose, and began to wait on him. And when the evening had come, they brought to him, look at this, they brought to him many who were de demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed, how much? All who were ill in order that <clears throat> what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Look at this. In order that. What does that mean? That the reason why Jesus was healing everybody is to fulfill the very words of the prophecy that was mentioned in Isaiah. Which one? He himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases. Amen? So that is Isaiah 53, 4. That's the verse we're analyzing. Matthew used that verb and say, Jesus went about healing every sickness and every disease so that the words of Isaiah can be fulfilled. So as you can tell, Matthew understood Isaiah 53.4 as the context or in the context of Jesus taking our, on himself our physical sicknesses and our physical diseases on the cross so that he can provide healing. This is Matthew's understanding of that verse. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to highlight a couple of things because it seems to me that Matthew really went out of his way to tell us this message. What I'm trying to say is this. Remember when we were looking into Isaiah 53, 4, we say that the words, he carried our infirmities and he bore our sorrows. It can definitely has an emphasis on physical sicknesses and physical diseases, but the word can carry a broad meaning of affliction, right? But when Matthew quoted it in the Greek here, he actually changed the words a little bit. And he used more words words that has more emphasis on sicknesses and diseases rather than general um, affliction and general sorrows. Amen? Not only that, but remember we talked about the Septuagint before, right? That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Christ. So that gives us a, a big understanding of how the Jews understood the Old Testament. And this is that Septuagint was pretty much the Bible that Jesus and his disciples used. Amen? That's the Greek Old Testament translation. The Septuagint read that verse as follows. That he, this one, the servant, bears our sin and suffers for us. Okay? So the Septuagint actually changed the meaning altogether. And they emphasized on how the servant was the substitute uh, in terms of his death so he can provide atonement. He bore our sins. The word sins that the Septuagint used, not even in the Hebrew, but this is how they understood the verse. Amen? Right? And this is the Bible that Jesus and his disciples used. Like, but remember, see how Matthew actually kind of avoided the Septuagint altogether and went back to the Hebrew text where it talks about physical sickness and physical diseases. Amen? So Matthew could have easily used the Septuagint, but he opted not to use it and go back to the actual Hebrew because he wanted to emphasize how Jesus 
truly took our sickness and our diseases on himself on the cross so he can provide healing for us. Amen? Amen. You guys follow me so far? Yeah. Alright, now let's move to a point that some people argue and say, well, but wait a minute. If Jesus would have carried our sicknesses and our diseases on the cross throughout his death, then why would Matthew apply that verse to the ministry of Christ, not the death of Christ? You guys follow me? We don't see that verse, Isaiah 53, quoted by Matthew in Matthew 27, when Jesus is being tormented on the cross, right? This is Matthew 8, where Jesus is still doing his ministry. Some people can look at this and say, well, that might prove that Matthew didn't think really that healing was in the atonement, since he applied Isaiah 53 to the ministry of Christ, not to the death of Christ. All right? You follow me? Well, not really. Okay, say it again. Sure. So, uh, the whole point of Isaiah 53 verse 4 is that Jesus, or Matthew, the way he quoted it is that Jesus was our substitute on the cross. That he took our sicknesses upon himself so he can provide healing for us, right? Some argue and say that might not be the case because Matthew did not apply Isaiah 53 to the context of Jesus dying on the cross, but to the context of Jesus' ministry way before the cross. Therefore, maybe Matthew didn't really mean that atonement or healing is in the atonement or Jesus will provide healing for us on the cross. You guys follow me? Good, move on. Alright, so let's look into it. It is not true. <clears throat> Even though Matthew used that Isaiah 53, 4 in the context of the ministry of Christ, yet we can still see that he meant that healing was provided through in the atonement. How? Because Matthew, when Jesus was going about healing the sick, Jesus was healing the sick on account of the cross was about to take place a few years later. Okay? Let me show you an example. Throughout the ministry of Christ, we see that Jesus also forgave sins. At least two incidences we see it in the Bible. We see in Luke 7 that he forgave an adulterous woman. And in Matthew 9, he forgave the sins of the paralytic, right? Now here's a question. The Bible clearly says in Hebrews chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, right? Now, when Jesus forgave the sins of the adulterous woman or the paralytic, had Jesus shed his blood at this point? No. So how can Jesus forgive if the Bible clearly tells us that the blood has to be shed first and then forgiveness of sin come? Right? Well, Jesus forgave on account of the cross that he is about to endure. It's kind of like credit. He's, he's, he's taking credit on the cross. Amen? And we see that point blank in Romans 3, 25 to 26. The Bible tells us, as clear as it can be, that the only reason why God forgave the Old Testament prophets for their own sins is because Jesus was going to come to die for them. Amen? If Jesus was able to forgive, if God forgave sins in the Old Testament or before the cross, on account of the cross that is about to happen, then we can easily assume that it's okay too, that God will heal, that Jesus will heal on account of Him bearing the sicknesses and diseases down the road in the future a few years later. Amen? So we're good here? Alright. So we started uh, Isaiah 53. We looked at how Matthew understood it. Matthew clearly telling us that the only reason why Jesus administered healing is because he took our sicknesses himself, on himself on the cross. So let's move on to the following question. Does that mean that there is healing in the atonement of Christ? The simple answer is Yes, there's no question about that. The Bible clearly teaching us that the only reason anybody will get miraculously healed, all healed, is because Jesus paid for that healing on the cross. We see it point blank in Isaiah 53, and we see how Matthew quoted it, and even went out of his way to emphasize that to you and me, that truly the only reason Jesus would administer healing is because he took our sicknesses upon himself on the cross. Amen? Yeah. So that is direct Bible verses that tells us that. But there's also, uh, this is explicit. Now let's look at implicit teaching in the Bible that also emphasize the fact that Jesus took our sicknesses and our sins upon himself on the cross. And it's only because of that that he can provide healing. 
You see, the Bible tells us that sin is either the direct uh, sickness, is either the direct result of sin or the indirect result of sin. Amen? Sickness, I believe, would have never even existed if sin would have not existed. Amen? We see many examples in the Bible where, where sickness is the direct result of sin. Deuteronomy 7.15, now God is speaking and he's telling the nation of Israel, and the Lord will take away from you all sicknesses and will afflict you with none of the terrible disease of Egypt which you have known, but you, but will lay them on all those who hate you. God said he will do that. If you read before that, God said, if you obey me, then this is what's going to happen to you. So in the context of obeying God, God said there will be no sicknesses or diseases. The opposite shall be true as well. Amen. The idea here, God is saying, and if you don't obey me, then there will be sicknesses and diseases, the same ones I laid on the, the nation of, of, of the Egyptians. So yes, correct. We see that sin is the direct result of, the sickness is the direct result of sin. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man who is laying paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. What does Jesus tell him at the end? See, you, you have been made well. Look at this. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What does it imply? That he was sick, he was paralytic because he had sin. There is something he did, sin, that caused him directly to become sick. Amen? I mean, we read a lot of stories that uh, in the church, once people heal, once people forgive those who have been sinned against or the people who done them wrong, they get healed right away. You know, it's the root of bitterness inside them that is holding them from being healed. Right? And you see that, this, that sickness is the direct result of sin. When you hold bitterness in your heart, then you get sick. And once you release that and you forgive, then all of a sudden the sickness has gone. So true, sickness can be the direct result of sin. But this is not to say that everybody is sick because they have sin in their lives. Amen? If you're sick today, it's not necessarily that you have a sin in your life. It might be, but it's not necessarily true. Sickness can also be the indirect result of sin. You see, when God created the world, God said, when he looked at everything, he said, this is what? Good, right? God never created anything that was not good. God never created sickness. He never intended for sickness to enter into the world. He never intended for death to enter into the world, right? As a matter of fact, he told Adam, only when you eat from the fruit of the tree that I'm forbidding you, that's only when you will die, right? Yeah. What, is, what does that imply? That if Adam never eats, then Adam will never die. He will always live. So God never created sickness. God never created death. God meant life. God meant wealth. Not wealth. Health for all of us. Yet, yet, because sin entered into the world, sin brought with it a lot of consequences like guilt, like shame, and yes, like sicknesses and like diseases. Amen? You guys follow me? Yeah. So sickness is sickness can be the indirect result of sin. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, even though our outward man is uh, perishing. What is the outward man? Your body, right? Yeah. He's saying that even though our outward man is uh, decaying, is fading, is perishing, is dying, yet our inward man is being renewed day after day or day by day. So the idea here is this. Our outward body, this stent is perishing, is dying, is getting sick, is, get, is fading because we're living in a world that is fallen and that have sinned against God. Amen? Amen. Now Jesus came and he took sin upon himself and the Bible say that he has put away sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. Amen? When Jesus took care of the root of the problem, we should as fairly and justifiably assume that he also take care of all the consequences that sin can bring. Amen? Whether it's guilt, whether it's shame, whether it's sickness, whatever the case is that sin can directly or indirectly bring, Jesus also took care of that on the cross. Amen? What I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say that every blessing from God, every healing, every good thing that God can ever give you was never made possible if Jesus would have not died on the cross. Amen? Remember, we're enemies to God if you're not right with Him. Amen? 
There is nothing good that you can ever have from God unless it was given to you through the cross of Christ. So, is healing in that torment? The answer is yes. The Bible directly teaches it and we can see it indirectly implied in so many other verses in the Bible. So let's move on to the last part. Addressing the hard question. So what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross and he already took our sicknesses and our diseases? Does that mean that we all should go around, be healthy and wealthy and just enjoy life and no trouble whatsoever? Well, what does it mean then that Jesus actually died and he paid for it? If Jesus paid for it, why do we have to suffer through it, right? Or why do we have to be sick if Jesus already paid for it on the cross? So we'll try to address some of these questions. When it comes to healing, um, I, I, I just try to organize this as much as I can. So I thought, let's break it down into two different categories. What, what the Bible teaches us about healing, amen? We'll divide it to two different categories. We're going to talk about areas where there are questions that we don't have answers to yet. Amen? I'll call these the gray areas. Okay, areas that, you know, yes, the Bible say this, but the, also the Bible say that, and we're not really sure what is the answer to that question. Amen? And then there's another area where we know for sure this is 100% direct biblical teaching. There's no question about the way this needs to be executed. It is so black and white, you don't need to figure to argue about that. Amen? So we're going to divide, divide biblical teaching about healing into two major camps. The questionable part and the non-questionable part. You guys follow me so far? Yes. You with me? Yes. Alright, let's go to the questionable part first, okay? Let's try to address some of the hard questions. If Jesus died on the cross and he already paid for our healing, then should I, should, does that mean that as a Christian or as a believer that I should never get sick? Or if I'm sick that I, I must be healed since Jesus already paid for it on the cross? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> okay? So let's look into that. We see in the Bible that God heals through different methods and different ways. Number one, God can heal miraculously. Number two, God can heal with a medicine. And number three, we see examples in the scripture where God somehow, we don't know why, chose not to heal. Amen? Let's talk about God healing miraculously. Does God heal miraculously? I don't know. Does he, Justina? Amen. <laughs> Justina got healed from cancer last year miraculously. In one day, she woke up with cancer. Next day, no cancer, right? And that's certified by medicine. So does God heal miraculously? You better believe that he does. Yeah. Does he heal his children miraculously? You better believe that he does. Yeah. I'll show you over and over many examples in the scripture where we see God heal his own children miraculously. The first Example, the verse, Bible verse for that is God is telling Israel, again, that in Exodus 15, 26, I will put none of the diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptian. And then look at this. For I am the God that healeth thee. That is God's name, Jehovah Rufi. He's the God who heals. That's his name. Amen. Last I checked, God didn't go to a court and got a court order to change his name from I am the Lord that healeth thee to I am the Lord that healeth thee not. Amen? Yes. Amen? His name is still Jehovah Rufi. His name is still I am the Lord that healeth thee. Amen? If his name is Jehovah Jireh in the Old Testament and it's still Jehovah Jireh in the New Testament, if his name is the Lord our righteousness in the Old Testament and he is our righteousness in the New Testament, then we must believe and agree that his name, the Lord that healeth thee in the New Old Testament, is still valid for you and me today in the New Testament. Amen? Yes. I would say even more so. Think about it. God revealed himself to the children of Israel under an old passing covenant that is not as good as the new covenant that we have. And he said, I am the Lord that will heal you. Amen. If he gave that to the nation of Israel under a covenant that has already passed and already ceased from existence, how much more would he not provide that under the eternal covenant to the New Testament believers? The obvious answer is he sure will. Amen. I am the Lord that healeth thee that has not changed. The second scripture proof that God does heal miraculously is, in the New Testament, we see 
healing and miracles, mainly, primarily in the context of the church going forward and proclaiming the gospel, and the message of the gospel is backed up by signs and wonders, right? That is almost 99.9% .9 of the miracles in the, in the New Testament. Amen? Amen? So think about that. If God is good enough, and he loves the lost enough that he would heal them to show, to show them that he loves them. Wouldn't he do that to his own children? He sure will. Amen? I'm thinking about it. My own kids, right? Three of them. If I have money and I see that they're hungry and the kids' neighbors are hungry, and I go buy food and give it to the kids' neighbors to show them, hey, I'm a pastor, come and visit my church. What kind of father I would be, right? If I care about the kids' neighbor and I try to provide for their needs, I sure will provide for my kids' needs even before that, right? Yeah. Now, if I'm being that awful of a father and I love my kids that much, will God love us less? The obvious answer is no. Amen? If God heals the lost and heals those who don't know him to show them that he loves them, then he surely healed those who are already in his family, his own children. Amen? Amen. In the Bible, we see examples of believers who are getting healed miraculously. We read about Hannah in the Old Testament, the mother of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1. She was a barren woman. She cried out to God. And what happened? God healed her womb miraculously. Amen? We see a story in Acts chapter 9 about a disciple, a disciple, a believer called Dorcas, who died. And then Paul goes there and he raised, his, raised her from the dead. And the church, all the church rejoiced because of the miracle. Amen? Now, I know this is raising from the dead, not healing the sick. But hey, if God raised the disciple, the believer, out of the dead, won't he heal them from their sicknesses and diseases? Amen. He sure will. He sure does. Number four, fourth evidence from the Bible that God does heal miraculously his own children. We read in, in 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts of healing or the healings of gifts of healing that is provided to the church. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible that makes us believe or think that these gifts are not meant also. It might have been this particular gift for the lost to come into the church so the church can be edified that way. However, there is nothing that we should not believe that these gifts not just administered by believers who have the gifts of healing, but also administered to believers within the church realm. Amen? There is we should actually kind of get it this way. Kind of, this is the face value reading of that chapter when you read it in 1 Corinthians 12. Amen? Amen. So I have four evidence, scripture evidence, that God does heal miraculously his own children. Amen? But God can also heal with medicine. So if you go to a doctor and the doctor tells you to take your medicine, take your medicine. Amen? We see an example for that in 2 Kings 20, uh, 4 to 7. Long story short, we have a king called Hezekiah who loved God. And he said, he, God said, okay, get everything done. You're going to die. He's like, oh God, please spare me. Isaiah the prophet goes to him and says, God heard your prayer. You're going to live 15 extra years. And then um, if you skip all the way to verse 7, the list, very last Two lines of that paragraph, 2 Kings 20, verse 7. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took it and laid it on the boil and he recovered. Amen. So God gave him a word that he will be miraculously healed, right? Yet within that miraculous healing, God used natural means so he can provide recovery to King Hezekiah. Amen. So medicine can definitely be used of God to bring healing. Amen. Take your medicine. Amen? God can use it to heal you. But number four, number three, which is kind of, uh, this is where it gets a little bit itchy. Uh, God may not heal. And we see examples for that in the scripture as well. I think that the first example we see was in 2 Kings 13, 14 to 21. Look at this. Elisha, Elisha, that's the prophet who followed Elijah, who had the double portion of the Elijah's anointing, the man who did so many signs and wonders. Look at this. Elisha has become what? Sick. Sick. With what? With the illness of which he would die. He got sick and he died. Elisha. This is the man who moved in the anointing and the power of God. Right? The crazy part for me is this. After he died, they put him in a grave, and then there is a raid. So there is a dead body, there is a raid by a different nation, and there is a 
people taking a dead body, they try to bury it, and then when the raid happens, they're just in panic, so they take the dead body and throw it in a grave that happened to have Elisha's dead body, and guess what? The man who's dead, that were taking him to be buried, once he touched the dead body of Elisha, that dead man rise up and he rose from the dead. Think about that. Think about that. I, I was just... If God has to perform a miracle, if, if there's only one miracle by God to be granted, whom should God grant that miracle to? His own servant? Or some random guy that we don't even know his name? Right? You would think God will give it to Elisha rather than that random dude that we never know his name, right? But God didn't do it his, this way. Why? I don't know. Right? Why didn't God heal Elisha? I have no idea. Could God heal him? Absolutely. Actually, I, I mean, again, his dead body performed the miracle. <laughs> so there is something there. Let's go move on to a couple of other examples in the uh, New Testament. 2 Timothy 4.20. Now, this is Paul. And he's taking, sending a letter to Timothy. And he say, Erastus abode at Corinth, but um, Trophimus, I have left at Miletium sick. Okay, this is just a bunch of people who was working with, uh, Saul, with, uh, with Paul. He left this guy sick, right? Now think about that as well. This is Paul, right? Remember what the book of Acts say about Paul? That he doesn't even have to be in the place. They just can grab some tissues, some handkerchief off his body and take it to sick people in a different place. And the, the handkerchief of Paul will actually heal the sick. They might even not be in the same town. But the power, that anointing that was on Paul, will, that his own handkerchief will heal the sick that is not even present with Paul, right? Yet that same Paul had this co-worker with him whom got sick and hang out with Paul for a while sick. And then Paul's leave him sick. Wouldn't Paul pray for him? I'm pretty sure he did. Right? And we don't know what happened to Brother Trophimus after Paul left. He might have healed miraculously afterward. We don't know, right? But the fact of the matter is the greatest healing evangelist of all time, Paul, had this sick friend. I'm pretty sure he prayed for him and nothing happened and he left him sick. Right? Philippians 2, 25 to 27. Here is Paul again. And he's saying this, Yet I consider it necessarily to send to you uh, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my needs. Verse 26, since, since he was longing for you all and was distressed. Why? Because you have heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, what? Almost unto death. But God had mercy on him and not only only him, but also in me, lest I would have sorrow upon sorrow. We don't know how God healed brother Epaphroditus. He might have healed him miraculously. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is he got sick and he was not getting better, right? He was actually getting worse and worse and worse and worse till he got to the point that he's about to die. And Paul, he says, God spared him so I do not have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul was seeing him getting sick and sick and sicker and sicker. And the more Paul you see him getting sicker, Paul getting more sorrowful and get more sorrowful and get more sorrowful. And then ultimately God spared him and spared Paul. Amen? Why didn't God, why didn't Paul, the greatest healing evangelist of all time, heal his friend, heal his brother, who's a, obviously a good soldier of Christ here? The answer is, we don't know. Amen? Uh, again, he might have eventually been healed miraculously, right? He might just, God, administer healing to him. But the Bible just doesn't tell us that this is what happened. We just don't know. Amen? Let me use another example, last example. In 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 7 to 9. Now, Paul is talking about his visitations from God and he says that he was afflicted by a thorn in the flesh, right? And God gave him that thorn so he will not um, be puffed up. He will not be exalted. And then I just want you to skip with me to verse 9. That's the last four lines in that paragraph. Verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient to you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, most gladly I'd rather post in my infirmities, Paul said. That word infirmity can be translated as weakness. The Greek for it is uh, asathensia, which literally 
two parts, the first letter, which is a, kind of a negative, you know, and then the word synthas, which is strength. So the, literally the word means without strength, weak. That's literally what the word means. Yet it is very interesting that this is the exact same word that Matthew used in Matthew 8.17 when, when he talked about Jesus and he said he bore our infirmity. It's the exact same word that Matthew used to tell us that Jesus bore our sicknesses on the cross so we can be healed. Amen? Matthew was referring to the Old Testament, but Paul here in 1 Corinthians and Matthew used the exact same Greek word for weakness or infirmity. Is that thorn a sickness? I personally don't think so, but the point's still valid, right? God could have done a miracle and he chose not to, right? Because God somehow thought that even though he might not administer the miracle, yet he'll still use that for Paul's good. He will use it for his benefit. Ultimately, it's all going to end out being good for Paul. Amen? Alright, so Pastor Kemi, you are confusing the daylight out of me. Should I trust God for my healing or should I not trust God for my healing? What should I do? I go, well, I'm glad you asked because I have an answer for you. You guys ready? My answer is you should trust God, period. It doesn't matter healing or no healing, you trust God. Amen? This is just one of these areas that we have, don't have answers to. I pray that we all get healed and there is healing in that torment. I'm not taking that. And the Bible tells us over and over that God does heal miraculously. I'm not minimizing that. But the fact of the matter is I don't want you to think because you're a believer, you shouldn't have high cholesterol or high blood pressure or never struggle with diabetes because you're born again by the Spirit of God. Amen? I mean, God can heal you. Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is we are living in a, in, in a world that is perishing and we just don't have all the answers. Amen? Amen. Now you need, sometimes God can speak to your heart and give you peace that you will be healed even though the doctor told you you only have one month to live, right? And then you need to trust God that His promises are true and what He has assured you in your heart will come to pass even though doctors say it will never happen. Amen? But the end of the day, whether God heals you, whether God doesn't heal you, whatever the case is, you trust God. God. Amen? And that's not just with healing. That's with every struggle that you go through in your life. You just trust Him. Even though you don't understand it, even though it doesn't make sense, you just trust Him. Amen? Now, look at these last two lines that I wrote. I want you to, this is so good. Look at this. God is not good. God is good. Not because He only allows good things into our lives. Get this. God is good not because He only allows good things into our lives. Rather, God is good, therefore everything in our lives, He will turn it out for good. That's a big difference. Amen? If you can phrase this and hang it in your bedroom so you can remember it every day whenever you struggle with something. God is good. Not because He only gives good gifts to you, but because whatever is in your life, He'll turn it around for good. Alright, so how does it work then? If Jesus died, what is the point? If Jesus died and he paid for our healing on the cross, then, then I'm still sick, then what's the point of Jesus bearing my sicknesses and diseases? Here is what I'm thinking. Jesus died and he also took our sins on the cross, right? Yes. And you're a believer, do you still struggle with sin? Yes. yes. Why do you struggle with sin if Jesus has already done away with it once and for all? Because we live in a sinful world, right? But one day, we're all going to end up in heaven and there will be no struggle because of sin. Amen? There will be no guilt, no shame, no bondage, no struggle. Everything will be good because we're going to be in the presence of God. Amen? Now, guess what? This eternal status when you are in the presence of God with no struggle of sin, guess, guess who paid for that? Jesus. Where? On the cross. So even though we reap some fruit from what Jesus had, well, we reap a lot of fruit, but the ultimate fruit, what God really intended from the very beginning, we're going to reap throughout eternity, eternity, and that is only made possible because Jesus died on the cross for us. Amen? And it's the same thing when it comes to sickness and disease. That's just me. Today is October 29, 2017. Five years down the road, I might change my mind, but this is where I stand today. Amen? Jesus died on the cross. He paid for our sins and we do see 
a lot of miraculous healing for the body of Christ, but ultimately we're going to reap that eternal fruit of we being in heaven with no sicknesses and diseases for all eternity because Jesus has redeemed us from sin and from all its consequences. Amen? Let me look at this. Revelation 21 verse 4. The last two lines again. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more what? Pain. Pain. Yeah. Amen? There will be no sicknesses and diseases. Whether physical pain or mental pain or whatever the case is. That's all paid for because Jesus died for us on the cross. Amen? So these are the gray areas. Now let's just close on a good note and finish with the, the black and white area. I'm sorry it's long, but there is no way I could stop in the middle somewhere. Let's close with this. What are the areas that we're very sure about when it comes to healing? Amen? The areas that the Bible is so clear, we don't have to question it. Well, we'll highlight three areas. Number one, we know for sure that healing is in the atonement. Amen? Yeah. There's no question in our minds about that. Amen? Every healing God provides, every good gift God provides, He provides it because Jesus paid for it on the cross. Remember, we deserve absolutely nothing from a holy and a righteous God. Amen? That's point number one. Point number two. Physical healing throughout the New Testament is mainly, look at this, is mainly and primarily in the context of the kingdom of God going forth and exercising power and authority over the kingdom of darkness. Amen? 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 As a matter of fact, as, as, as far as I know, I might be wrong, but the raising up of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9 is the only miracle, if I remember correctly, in the New Testament that was done to a believer. Amen? Every single other miracle in the New Testament, it is mainly in the context of the kingdom of God exercising power and authority over the kingdom of darkness. Amen? It's the, the, that's the whole point of the New Testament. Two kingdoms are colliding. The kingdom of darkness were just sitting still and having all humanity under their captivity. And then Jesus comes from heaven. He is the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes and he exercises his power and his authority over the kingdom of darkness through signs and wonders, through miracles and healings. Amen? Let me show you examples. Luke 9, 1 to 2. Now Jesus is sending out the 12. And what does he say? Then he calls his 12 disciples together and he gave them what? Power and authority over all devils and to do what? Cure diseases, healing, okay? And he sent them to preach what? The kingdom of God and heal the sick. Do you see how these two are connecting together? Preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Luke 10, 9. Now Jesus is sending out the 70. And he say, he commanded them and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see again, the kingdom of God comes with healing, comes with miracles to those who don't know Jesus. Amen? Luke eleven twenty. Now, the, the Jewish people are accusing Christ that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the, king, the, the, the ruler of demons. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is the finger of God. And then he says in Luke eleven twenty, But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, surely, what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see it over and over again? The kingdom of God, when it comes, it comes with power, it comes with authority, it comes with signs and wonders, healing and miracles. Amen? Let me just pause here for a second. If we really want to see a revival in Fairfax County, in Virginia, and in our land, this is what we need. Amen? This is God's recipe. The kingdom of God is not meant to be presented by words and persuasion. It's meant to be presented by the anointing and the power of God. Can I have an amen? Yes. I, like, I mean, a lot of pastors I meet, they say, oh, they, they teach and preach their crowds and say, their congregations say, go build relationships and eventually share the gospel. I don't know what Bible they're reading. The Bible doesn't say you need to go build relationships with the lost. The Bible says you need to exercise the power through the kingdom of God over the lost in signs and wonders and miracles and healing. Amen. Let's not substitute the anointing of the Holy Spirit with our personal efforts. Amen? amen. I need a big amen. Amen? Yeah. amen. All right. First Corinthians 4.20. Look at what Paul said. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. 
you preaching the kingdom of God? Show your power. Not your logic, your power. Amen? Yeah. Even yeah. Matthew, Matthew 8, the very context where Matthew quoted Isaiah 53. In Matthew 8, we don't see Jesus hanging out with his disciples and healing his disciples. Amen? We see Jesus going and proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom of God, to people who don't know God. And through that, he's exercising power and authority over signs and wonders. Amen? Through signs and wonders and healing. So, Isaiah and Matthew, they all still talking about the th same thing, that when the kingdom of God will come. It will come with the power. There will be healing. There will be signs and wonders. Amen? Now this is not negotiable. Amen? This is not a gray area where we can question, oh maybe the Bible say it, maybe the Bible doesn't say it. No, the Bible is pretty clear about that. Amen? When we proclaim the gospel, the power of God should back it up and the kingdom of God should exercise authority over the kingdom of darkness in signs and wonders. Amen? Same thing throughout the life of the disciples. We see that every single disciple associated proclaiming the gospel with signs and wonders. Amen? I'll read one verse to spare you some time. Acts 4, 29-30. Now the disciples are crying out to God because they've been persecuted. Now think about that. And instead of... In face of the persecution, and instead of the disciples sitting together and saying, you know what, we're being persecuted. Maybe our method doesn't work. Maybe we need to play it a little bit low-key. Maybe we need to try to approach people with, have them over for dinner and hang out with them first before we tell them about Jesus. Maybe we just need to play it a little bit cool. And instead of the disciples trying to show practical love to the world, they pray and they then say, God, give us a new strategy. Let's look at this. Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, look upon the th their threats and grant your servants a new strategy. Amen? I don't know what verse you're reading. Does the Bible say that? Does the, does the disciples say grant your servants a new strategy? A new method? A new way to show our love to the lost? No! None of that. What did they ask for? Grant us all boldness that they may speak your word that, that they may speak all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus amen in the face of the persecution they said well the recipe has not changed God's plan for the gospel has not changed it is still boldness and signs and wonders not either and not just one of them it is both of them in the same time boldness and signs and wonders amen yeah. this is non-negotiable when it comes to healing this is black and white we don't need to argue about that amen last point every believer every believer is to experience signs administering signs and wonders at some level amen now, the gifts of healing might not be for every believer, but every believer is to see miracles in their lives. Maybe they will not receive it, but they sure should give miracles to other people. Amen? Not a big amen? Amen. John 14, 12. This is Jesus. And he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Is that you? Do you believe today? Yes. He who believes in me. Did Jesus say the pastors and the elite? No. He said whoever, right? Did he say those who know Greek and Hebrew? No. He said he who believes in me. If that's you, then the scripture is a promise to you today. The works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these, he will do. Because I go to my Father, this is very interesting. God may have not promised healing and miracles to you, but He said you should go out and do miracles and healings. Amen? Amen. Now, these are non-biblical negotiables when it comes to healing and signs and wonders. Amen? Alright, let's close our eyes and pray.